All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 23. We are coming up to the end of the chapter. We'll see if we can jump on some galloping horses and get through these verses here today. Um, And it may not seem like it until you realize that there is a long section at the end of chapter 23 that deals with drunkenness. And so there is a long, almost a full paragraph that's really unusual for the format that we've grown accustomed to here in the book of Proverbs, where just basically a single verse sits by itself, or occasionally a a pair of verses will stand as a tandem. Very rarely will three verses come together as a triplet. But um, we got a, a section here on drunkenness that's actually quite quite lengthy when we, uh, as we get to it. All right, so before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we thank You for this proverb study. And uh, hard to imagine a a study was going to follow the, the 10 years that we spent in the life of Christ. But Father, uh, I do want to just thank you for these recent years and the blessings you provided through the book of Proverbs. Quite surprising in my, in my expectations, Father, but uh, you know what you're doing and as you lead us in your truth, and we thank you for that. So Father, we want to thank you once again for this day, uh, that you would bless our time together, and also for the all the uh, remaining upcoming uh, Wednesday mornings in uh, in 2021. Father, uh, provide a blessing as we, as we bring this uh, series to a, a point of suspension. And uh, just thank you for being faithful. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so again, remember there is no Wednesday morning schedule for 2022. So as we get through the end of this year, on December the 29th, the final Wednesday of, of uh, 2021 will be our final uh, our final Proverbs class for at least a year. And we'll just see what happens after that as we go through the Bible. And then um, don't expect to pick up immediately in January of 2023 because I'm going to be taking some time off <laughs> uh, a vacation or something if in fact I survive uh, through the Bible. So anyway, paying attention to, uh, to those things. All right, so Proverbs 23. And we've covered a lot, which you can just simply observe by looking at all the slides in this slideshow. There's a lot of content in this chapter. And I think, um, yeah, what we were dealing with last week with points 9 and 10, um, point 11 with honoring father and mother. Let's just pick up there, I think, is where we left it. What was that? Almost to the end of 12, okay. Well then, let's... There we go. Oh yes, because we want to look at the illustrations on this. Alright, well let's pick up in verses 24 and 25 then. No need to review 22 and 23. A lot of these Proverbs kind of preach themselves. 
You know, they, uh, the, the nature of a proverb, the nature of a mashal is that they contain short, pithy statements, right? And we all need more pithy in our life. But the idea is, is that they preach themselves. They say what they say, and then they, they're simply presented as self-evident truths. It's a, it's a marvelous simplicity of, of communication. It's like, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. You just make a statement, and who wants to argue that? It just readily appears to be the way it is. This is, uh, this is how God has revealed Himself. So uh, yeah, when we did uh, last week, verses 22 and 23, listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. And so we have these these, uh, privileges here. All right, so moving on this morning then to verses 24 and 25. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad. Let her rejoice who gave birth to you. And so when you, when you phrase an imperative in this way, when, when you are letting something happen, uh, it's really kind of a passive sense in the fact that you're not the one doing it. You're not the one rejoicing, but you're causing your parents to rejoice. You are not creating a hindrance to your parents' joy. <laughs> In other words, you're not being the fool that causes their sorrow or causes their, um, their intensified prayer ministry on your behalf. So the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice and everything that comes into that. This is really a kind of a follow-up to what we've been studying prior to this related to the applications of honoring father and mother. Uh, truly the command to honor your father and mother. It doesn't stop when they, when they pass away. You continue to honor your father and mother even after they're in glory. You continue to honor your father and mother. The legacy of their training uh, as they bring you up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And you continue to honor them as you then pay it forward, as you then transmit that heritage to your children, to your grandchildren, and, uh, and so forth. And it's the marvelous blessing we have in humanity that the angels cannot relate to. The angels are not procreative. The angels are not multi-generational. The angels are all uh, peers of one another. They're all contemporaries, having all been created at the same time. But it's humanity that has the blessing to be able to have a begotten one, a begetter, and a begotten one. And then a begotten one who becomes a begetter and a begotten one. And we have the, the blessings that we have in the image of God to be able to portray the begetter and the begotten one. It's a tremendous privilege that we have in, uh, in humanity. And so again, we look at the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And uh, you, you might, I mean, some of these things almost go without saying, but it's worth just looking at it and saying, you know what? Um, the father of the righteous, there's never been a, a baby born except for Jesus Christ who came out of the womb righteous, right? I mean, John the Baptist didn't come out of the womb righteous. He came out of the womb with the Holy Spirit, but he was not yet righteous, no one's righteous. No, not one. Not until you become a born-again believer do you receive the righteousness of God imputed to your account. And so the great rejoicing is, I mean, yes, there is rejoicing when a child comes into the world and the, uh, the mother that just got finished in labor and delivery birthing that child, she has a rejoicing uh, that life has come into the world. But it's a greater rejoicing when the second birth takes place. It's a greater rejoicing when that unbeliever becomes a believer and so then the, uh, the parent, the father and mother of the righteous can greatly rejoice on the day that that, that child becomes a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. 
he who sires a wise son. Well, that didn't happen in the womb either. Okay, you know, when, when you have the newborn, when you're still changing diapers, there's not a, an infant or a toddler. A, a, you can start to glean wisdom as, as a child if you get saved young and you start learning Scripture young. But uh, wisdom is not a feature of a young child. It's foolishness that's bound up in the, in the heart of a child. And, and that foolishness has to be uh, beaten out of them as we studied again in Proverbs, recognizing that it's the rod of loving discipline that corrects the child, that you can train the child in the wisdom of the Word of God, and that's where you can begin to have a wise son. And so these things take time, okay? Obviously, uh, gestation and childbirth, that takes nine months. But to have a righteous son that walks in wisdom, that takes years, all right? Years of training up that child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then seeing that son no longer as a child, no longer uh, now as an adult, standing in his own generation, uh, giving birth to his own children. And that's the, that's the real joy that we have as, uh, as we watch these things. All right, so let your father and your mother be glad. Let her rejoice who gave birth to you. And so when this process unfolds, there is great rejoicing all the way around, right? The, the grandparents are rejoicing, the parents are rejoicing, the children are rejoicing. The occasion for that joy is the righteousness and wisdom that only comes by, uh, by the grace of God. So the righteous and wise walk not only pleases the parents, but honors the parents to their credit. It pleases them, but it also honors them. And it is a note of honor that, uh, that you have raised a godly child. And in fact, it becomes a, ma- a matter for public acclaim, for public esteem in, uh, in different capacities. And so you want to ask, you know, who, who raised this kid? <laughs> whose whose son are you? Whose daughter are you? In the case of uh, of a uh, of a woman of excellence, in uh, in that regard. And so these are the illustrations I just wanted to share this morning. And uh, rather than rush through them at the end of our class last week, when we look at Genesis twenty four thirty three, you got a. That's not it. Twenty four twenty three. There we go. Whose daughter are you? <laughs> okay, now there's a context that leads up to this, and this is the role when Abraham had sent his servant, and the servant is looking for a bride for Isaac, and he's, he's been charged by Abraham to obtain a bride, okay? And you just don't go to Dollar Tree and pick something out. You've got to find a bride. Uh, this is in, the, in the, the seed of the woman promise, the Abrahamic covenant promise. This is the salvation of humanity is on the line here. You've got to find a bride for the, uh, for the heir and all of the responsibility that he has. And he begins praying. And he's, if you're familiar with this chapter, and um, when he starts praying, he says in verse 12, yeah, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. And there's a tremendous humility on the part of this man because, you know, he's actually in line to to inherit. And he would have been the heir until the birth of Isaac. You know, Abraham was lamenting how old he was and that Ishmael was was out of bounds, but maybe Eliezer of Damascus could be his heir. There There were other considerations that Abraham had as far as who would be his heir. And the Lord made a promise and said, no, it's going to be the, the son from your body. It's going to be the son from Sarah's body. And, uh, and so with the birth of Isaac here, uh, you know, this servant might, uh, 
you know, if he was nefarious or had all other motivations, if he was wicked, um, he might be tempted to, uh, to not succeed on this mission. But no, he's humble before the Lord. He's going to be uh, faithful in this, in this duty. And so he prays, O Lord, the God, to, he prays to Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. This is a grace provision with a chesed loving kindness. This uh, servant is marvelous in his prayer life. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. So he's just praying about it. It says, man, Lord, you brought me here at a great time of day. Here I am at the right place at the right time. You know, uh, a target-rich environment. There's going to be all kinds of young ladies coming out. And uh, he, he wants to make a right choice. And he's, he's laying down the criteria here in divine guidance for ascertaining the will of God. Okay? I guess uh, unlike Gideon, he didn't have a fleece available. <laughs> but he is looking at his circumstances and he is surrendering his circumstances to the sovereignty of God. So daughters and men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed by, uh, for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. All right, now this, this is a curious text, and it's one I can't wait to get to in, in the Genesis series. It's going to be a while. Uh, we'll get to this, though, in the, in the, in the, through the Bible series, clearly. So that's coming up. But this kind of a, 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 a fleece, a test, a, a circumstance, when you're surrendering your uh, circumstances to the will of God and knowing that God is sovereign over all things, He's controlling what girls are coming out of the town what order they come out, which one speaks first, which one doesn't speak, which one has a gracious reply to his gracious request. So when he says, please let down your jar so that I may drink, that's a gracious request. This girl might ask, you know, who are you or who's this pervert coming into town or why is he talking to me? Um, but he's making a request for a drink, similar to what Jesus does when he goes to the woman at the well and he says, give me a drink. And that Samaritan woman, I mean, these, these occasions are, are just neat, the way that they, they, they get portrayed in the Scripture. But then when the reply comes back, not only is she positive to giving him a drink, but then she also has the capacity here to help with the camels. He just says, look, this is, is this reasonable? Is this possible? Can, can the God of all sovereignty organize these circumstances? Clearly he can, you know. Um, he can spark um, inclinations, he can spark impulses if, uh, you know, whatever crosses her mind that, oh, yeah, he's thirsty, maybe his camels are thirsty too, just the idea is going to pop into her head, and, uh, and God's in charge of that. Anyway, the, when this all unfolds, the way he was praying about it, you know, if, if you're praying for something and you're asking for something and you're asking for these circumstances to be made clear, then when it does happen, don't be shocked. <laughs> don't be shocked and then don't second guess yourself because you just asked for that and here it is. All right. May she be the one whom you have appointed <coughs> for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown chesed, the loving kindness to my master. And before he had finished speaking... 
before he had finished speaking. I like that. It's like the, the prodigal son. He'd been rehearsing his speech and before he had finished speaking, he couldn't even get the whole spiel out of his mouth when uh, the, the provision was made. Before he had finished speaking, behold, <coughs> Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham, his brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. Okay? Now the servant doesn't know who she is yet, but this is uh, the text revealing to us who this girl is. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And so this is all the sovereignty of God. The servant didn't pray that she had to be a pretty girl. He didn't pray anything about her appearance or anything about um, her virginity or any of that. But this is what the answer to the prayer is coming. And so the servant ran to meet her and said, please get me a drink, a little water from your jar. Let me drink a little water from your jar. All right. So she said, drink my Lord. Okay. That wasn't part of his prayer either, the Lord reference. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. And now you start to wonder, okay, there's a little bit of a gap here. She said the one thing, but he's waiting for that second thing. And, and it must have stretched out like an eternity waiting for that second part to come. <clears throat> and when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. There it is. Okay, this is what he'd been asking about. This is what he was praying for. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. So his request has led to extra work on her part, but she's graciously providing not only for this stranger, she doesn't know who he is, she called him my Lord, she doesn't know who he is, but she's provided him water and now she's taking care of his animals. What's the, why? What does she owe him? What is, what is, what is he to her? What are these camels to her? What is she getting out of this? She does, she has, this is just an expression of her graciousness. It's an expression of her servant um, heart, of her upbringing. But to put it back into Proverbs 23, she is a righteous daughter and she's walking with wisdom. Okay? So meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence. Now that's not, he's not a perv. Okay, this is, <laughs> he's gazing at her in silence and he's wondering, he's praying, he's pondering to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. I mean, it's just coming so quick. Everything's just been paved like that. So when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for his wrist weighing 10 shekels in gold. Now, this is substantial, okay? And he said, whose daughter are you? Now, we can view this as it relates to just simply a marriage contract. This could arrange to, I need to know who your dad is because i got business to conduct. But we can also understand this question about whose daughter are you in the sense of who raised you to be a woman of righteousness and wisdom? To be a woman that is walking in righteousness, walking in wisdom, who is a delight and a pleasure to your father and your mother, that this is the real character that's at play here, what Proverbs 23 is describing. So whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? Whatever parents would raise a righteous and wise woman like this may be the kind of parents that would have hospitality, would have uh, a gracious welcome for, for a stranger. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? 
So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And right there, as soon as she says that, it's just the, the bells are ringing, the, the, you know, the wedding bells are ringing, the, the, the lights are going off, fireworks. I mean, the servant knows man, this is just too good to be true. You know, um, you, you couldn't, you could, a fictional writer couldn't write a story like this and just make it up. It has to be the sovereignty of God. It has to be the divine guidance at work. Because of, again, when you go back earlier in the chapter and you see the, the command that Abraham had put him under, that the, the Canaanite women were, were off limits, they were out of bounds, that the son for Isaac had to come from his kinsman in, uh, in Padan Aram. And here, lo and behold, this is a kinsman. This is a near kinsman. When you uh, start to track the requirements for a goel, for a kinsman redeemer, this is in that close proximity of what we're, what we're looking for. So, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. I mean, she couldn't have had better words. I mean, this was exactly the ideal words. This is like when I told my mother I'd met a girl and my mother wanted to know, this was on the phone back when they had pay phones, okay? This is long before cell phones. And, um, and she wanted to know, where did you meet this girl? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and you could hear a little trepidation in that voice. And I don't blame her. I was the oldest. I was the only one that had left home. And I imagine mom's prayer life was all concerned about the soldier and all the things soldiers are exposed to, you know. Anyway, um, all I had to say was, well, I met her at church. She was, uh, and when I said she was at Austin Bible Church under Ralph Braun, she's a Sunday school teacher, it was game over at that point. Mom was done. She started planning the wedding. She knew that Ralph Braun wouldn't have a Sunday school teacher in his church that wasn't, uh, you know, a, a believer and doctrinal and, uh, you know, as far as anything else was concerned, that's all she needed to hear. Austin Bible Church, Ralph Braun, that was it. Okay? Likewise, all this servant had to hear was Bethuel, son of Milcah. Here we go. Whom she bore to Nahor. That's it. Those were the, those were the magic words. Those were the right names. Those were the kinsmen. When... Um, when Abraham departed from Paddan Aram and when Abraham and Lot and Sarah traveled down to, to uh, Canaan, these were the kinsmen that had been left behind. <clears throat> so she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. So the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. She still is clueless. She has no idea <laughs> that the wedding proposal is coming, that she is going to be you know, birthing the seed of the woman, birthing the, the line of Christ in, in the promises that are, that are made to Abraham. All right, so there's the great, great example there. But I like that. Whose daughter are you? Okay, we have another illustration that comes in 1 Samuel 17. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay, And again, this question, whose daughter are you or whose son of you? And the recognition that comes with respect to the, the raising up of a godly seed, with respect to the, the honoring of father and mother, and the joy that it is okay, to have a son that's recognized, to have a daughter that's recognized. Now, I, I suspect in this case, <clears throat> King Saul is more impressed with the killing of Goliath. <laughs> He's more impressed with the military deliverance He's more impressed with the, um, the, the earthly benefit 
that Saul really does not have the capacity to appreciate the fellowship in doctrine or the the like-mindedness in the Word of God. However, when we cross into the very next chapter, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. So even though Saul didn't have the capacity, Jonathan did. And you think about the tremendous uh, like-mindedness and fellowship that Jonathan and David had as mature believers in Christ, the uh, capacity that they had to fellowship in doctrine that, uh, that was there. Anyway, the covenant there between Jonathan and David and uh, loving him as himself. So there's other things there. Anyway, uh, if we're familiar with 1 Samuel 17, you can back up and you can see the whole Uh, the whole thing there. I do find it remarkable. Let me just pick up on a couple of items here. Even before the giant is killed. So here's the mission that uh, Jesse sends him on. Let's just pick up here. Uh, Jesse said to David his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, that's the valley of the giants, uh, fighting with the Philistines. All right. And so <coughs> this is the mission that he's on. And David is the youngest of the sons. David is the, the one that's left behind while the older brothers are off to war serving the, in the king's army and doing what they're doing. And this is the role of Jesse. Now look at his grace, look at his provision, look at his priorities. He's not um, a wealthy man. He's not um, noteworthy among the clans of Judah. In fact, Ephrathah was too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. It was not a, a linchpin within the, the structure of, of that tribe. And yet, uh, Jesse is the patriarch. He is called the Ephrathite. He is the, the patriarch of the clan that, uh, that is centered in, uh, in Bethlehem. So he's taking this provision and, and uh, when David gets there, notice the mocking scorn. The brothers are so dismissive. David arose early in the morning, left the flock with the keeper, took the supplies, went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. And it's curious, we've got a story here whereby we have a younger son that's on great terms with his father and you've got older brothers that are scornful of that little kid, that that hate the runt, that are pretty ugly towards their father. Why do we see this over and over again throughout the, the biblical record? David left the baggage in the care of the baggage keeper wherever he was, and uh, ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And then as he was talking with them, here comes the challenge from the, uh, the giant. And it's, again, not lucky, not coincidence. It is sovereignty that God directed the steps of David so that he would arrive at this moment, so that he would hear the challenge. And he would hear the challenge while he's in the presence of his brothers. All of this is the, the details that God sovereignly works out. And so uh, these taunting words, David heard them. And so the men take off, they're fleeing, greatly afraid. 
And uh, then the, the promise of the reward comes here. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. It will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. You know, so there's a, there's a, there's a bounty, there's a reward, great riches. He will give him his daughter. Well, there you go. That might be a good thing <laughs> um, or not, but it might, uh, but clearly uh, when you're making a, a wedding arrangement and any wedding connection is going to benefit your clan and your family and your tribe, uh, to have the political connections with the king's daughter is always a plus. And, uh, and make his father's house free in Israel. Ooh, sign me up for that. Okay. You know, wouldn't it be great for my clan to be tax-free? Every, every April 15th when the IRS says collecting taxes from everybody else, I just raise my hand and say, oh, not me. My household is free in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, now it's kind of curious because the brothers are there, but the brothers hadn't told him anything about this. It's these other men that he's hearing this from. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That's his concern. The, the name of Yahweh is being brought into disrepute from this uncircumcised Philistine. That's, that's offended David more than anything else. Take away the reproach from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And in, so incensed is David by this he doesn't realize, but these very words are, are quite insulting to the men he's talking to, to his brothers, to the king, to anybody. Why are you putting up with this? He's taunting the armies of the living God. Why haven't you guys killed him by now? So the people answered him in accord with this word, saying, thus it will be done for the man who kills him. But now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard. And this is where the family dynamics are interesting to me, because Eliab was raised by the same father David was raised by, and if you're going to raise a righteous son, you're going to raise a son with wisdom. Why is Eliab not a righteous son and a son with wisdom? <laughs> David certainly is. I think it's pretty clear that David is bringing Jesse joy and uh, Eliab is not. Because it's the righteous son, it's the wise son that brings the parents joy. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? What are you doing here? You got no business being here. Never crossing his mind that he's just obeying what dad wanted him to do. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Okay, how insulting, right? Those few sheep in the wilderness. You know, we don't know how rich Jesse was, but it evidently didn't impress Eliab. And the location of Bethlehem is not exactly in the wilderness, but it seems like it to, to uh, Eliab, certainly compared to um, where King Saul is hanging out and his capital and all the, the great cosmopolitan wonders of, of, King, of uh, Saul's court. Those few sheep, who have you left them with? Well, obviously he left them with somebody. There, are, there was a, somebody to take care of the baggage train. There was somebody to take care of the sheep. There's, there are servants around. Uh, Jesse is not a complete destitute piker or anything. There are servants. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. What's that about? 
my suspicion is it's the pot calling the kettle black. It's a projection on Eliab's part. If anybody is wicked with an insolent heart, it seems to be Eliab. It doesn't seem to be... Um, and, he, and we know he's tall and handsome, and we know that Samuel was impressed when he first laid eyes on him and looked at Eliab and went, wow, what a great king this guy's going to make. And the Lord said, quit looking at the outside, look at the inside. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You have come down in order to see the battle. You're just here to, for the thrill of watching, watching this. David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? I'm just asking a question. So he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered him the same thing as before. And this is probably a mark of wisdom on David's part too. That he's not going not gonna to take the bait. He's not going to rise to Eliab's challenge. He's not going to, you know, he just knows Eliab is, is what he is and he just lets it go. This is when Saul hears about it, sends for him. Saul at first, you know, says, this isn't going to work. How do you go against this Philistine? You're but a youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. I think in the life of David class, what did I say? He was about 10 years old, maybe 12 years old. He was not 14 yet. He was not yet, uh, you know, with his brothers in the army and serving the king. But if he was 10 or 12, ballpark, and he's already a combat veteran, he's already killed lions and bears. King Saul says, you can't go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David gives his credentials, talks about killing lions and bears, and your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. (laughs) Now whatever it is, you know, that's big talk from a little kid. But, you know, when the Spirit of God is behind a message and these words pierce, these words have an impact, something strikes, uh, strikes Saul to accept this testimony. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Whatever it was, something, the Spirit of God, you know, tweaked Saul's foolish heart. And this is, I mean, how desperate a Saul I mean, how many more days is this taunting going to last? At some point, the Philistines are just going to be done with it and go crush them. And this is really the last hope that Saul has. Go and may the Lord be with you. And here, you can use my armor, you can use my weapons. David, of course. And and it's, it's curious, he says, I have not tested them. That's his reason. It's not a faith thing, it's just a practical thing. Plus Saul was so tall and David was not. And I don't know that he didn't fit anyway. Anyway, so there's more of the, uh, the issue there. But we get to that question of whose son are you? Hmm. Saul saw David going out against the Philistines. He said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner says, by your life, O king, I, I do not know. And I think there's a little clue in there too that Eliab and these other brothers that are serving in Abner's army, they haven't made a great impression. <laughs> you know, if Saul doesn't know who they are, Saul, Abner doesn't know who they are. At least if he would have known Eliab and some of these other guys, then uh, uh, Abner could have said, oh yeah, he's the younger brother of Eliab, but he doesn't know. None of this is, he's not aware of any of this. You inquire whose son the youth is. Now, just like the other chapter, 
the question maybe nothing more than just inquire who I need to do business with, right? With, with a girl, who's your father? Because I know that's who I've got to do business with in order to uh, secure the marriage contract. Uh, in this case, uh, finding out who his father is, is letting the king know who he has to do business with in order to um, acquire this young man's service in his own personal um, uh, retinue, as far as that goes. So he tells him, find out who is, whose he is. And then Saul says, whose son are you? I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. So that tells him who he has to deal with. All right? Not anymore. Now you're mine. You're in my household now. Okay, so we have those examples. And uh, the blessing that it is to honor your father and mother, the blessing to be righteous and walking in wisdom, the joy that provides, and beyond the joy, it pleases the parents, it also honors the parents, it also gives credit to the parents, something that they can be proud of and a recognition can be offered. All right, we get now to the next verses. Let's get back to Proverbs 23. Twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. We've got a triplet of verses now. Sexual warnings. Words of the wise, number 17. Sexual warnings given so repeatedly in youth are reinforced by adult fathers to their adult sons. And again, repeatedly. Repeatedly. Looking here at Proverbs 23, verses 26 through 28. Give me your heart, my son. Give me your heart, my son. An adult father and an adult son. Not a child, not a little kid, not an unmarried uh, virgin in his house, but an adult son. Give me your heart, my son. Let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. The damage that's done to society through rampant promiscuity, the damage that gets done, uh, it destroys marriages, it destroys families. If uh, the nation is structured like ancient Israel was, where you have clans and tribes, it, the, the, the damage is, is just multiplied. It has ongoing ripple effects throughout the, from the family to the clan to the tribe to the nation. And even in the modern world, we don't have the, the clans and the tribes, but uh, the damage gets done in society. Damage that's done to families, damage that's done to the workplace, damage that's done to the community. And it's just horrible. All right, so again, where is your heart? Where is your heart placed? And um, where are your eyes? What are you looking at? What do you find delight in? We are to delight in, uh, in the way that sets that example. And, and what, a, what a great example from the older generation to keep encouraging the younger generation because every, uh, every stage of life that that son gets to, um, his father got there before he did, <laughs> okay? And same thing when every stage of life when he got to, his father before him got there before he did. And so in all of these stages, all right? And it is curious to me because we have these warnings that come in the youth, but they also get repeated in the older age. And what we find when this is illustrated in, in Genesis, for example, uh, when we find the, uh, the example of Judah 
and Tamar. We're not talking about young teenagers. We're not talking about kids. Judah had three adult sons, sons eligible for marriage. The, the first two died. The third one, he didn't want to die. Right? We, we know that story as well. And who was it? It was Judah. It was the grandfather. It was the old man that saw Tamar by the side of the road and didn't know who she was, thought she was just a harlot and, and um, ended up impregnating her. These warnings have to be given not just to our children as they're learning the facts of life and they're learning the things about the you know puberty and their bodies changing and all the things. Not just for teenagers, not just for young people, but for your adult sons, for adult married sons. And uh, the issues there. All right. A harlot is a deep pit. An adulterous woman is a narrow well. So trying to, trying to get yourself out of there, forget it. It's too deep, it's too narrow, and you're stuck. If someone's going to get you out of that deep pit, that narrow well, it's, you're going to need the grace of God. You're going to need some kind of help getting out of that out of that place. She lurks as a robber. She increases the faithless among men. And, and it just multiplies. And, and you're not her first victim. You won't be her last victim. There'll be plenty after you. That's why this just spreads and spreads and spreads. So we've taught this repeatedly um, to this point. I'd have to go back and see. I don't remember now. Was my, no. My mother was not still alive when I started Proverbs. No, no. Mom, mom was already in heaven before I started Proverbs. I was trying to remember. Yeah. Wondering. Some of these passages are a little bit awkward to teach and then if your mom is sitting right there you just got to pray. Because I'm pretty sure my mom didn't know anything about sex. That's the... Uh, <laughs> all right when i was a son to my father tender and the only son in the sight of my mother and recall this recall you know david and bathsheba had a terrible start probably the worst you can imagine for starting your marriage um and that first son died the son of their adultery died um but then after that uh the next born son is Solomon. And you can imagine it's described as a time of comfort between David and Bathsheba. Tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. Then he taught me and said to me, keep your heart, hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. And this is the, the blessing that we have in training up the next generation. Not that we did everything right or made all the right choices. We probably didn't, but we want our children to do better than we did. And we want them to learn from our mistakes. And we want them to have the fear of the Lord at the youngest of ages imaginable. And so that some of their earliest memories, I was saved so young and grew up in, in Sunday school and grew up in the nursery, the church nursery. And I don't have a memory of any time not going to church just because I was so young in, in, uh, in that context. So um, anyway, this is the, the, uh, the principle of training in the youngest of years. And so here in chapter 2, this, is, this forms, verses 3 and 4 form the kind of the backdrop. But then when you get down to verses 16 through 19, 
Is that what I'm headed for? Nope. Proverbs 2, 16 through 19. There we go. And this is part of the benefit of growing in the Word of God. What happens when you acquire wisdom? You're not just learning information. You are actually bringing into your soul the living and abiding Word of God. It is alive. It is powerful. It is sharp. Okay? And so you take in the living and abiding Word of God and it will benefit you to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. So if you've got the Word in your soul, there's going to be a benefit there, a protective benefit when this uh, strange woman, when this adulteress comes along, and, and it is flattering. And the things that she says, and, and, and you know, she smells nice, and she's pretty, and she's saying all these things, and it's flattering that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again. You know, if no one escapes, right? Why do you think you're different? Why do you think you're going to somehow survive this encounter? None who go to her return again, or at least not unscathed, right? Nor do they reach the paths of life. So you need the Word of God in your soul. That's what's going to rescue you. That's the, the power of the Word of God that delivers you not only from the, the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. When you're faced with a temptation, you need the power of the Word of God in order to deal with that. So the warning is given there. Dire warnings. Chapter 5, more warnings. In fact, you could read the whole chapter if you want to. Okay, In chapter 5, it just spells it out there. The lips of an adulteress drip honey. Sounds great. What's wrong with that? Oh, there's a lot wrong with that. Here's why. <laughs> Smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So you think you need that other two-edged sword working on your behalf? Of course you do. You need the Word of God in your soul. You've got to have doctrine. You've got to know the truth, and then you've got to be, by faith, you've got to live the truth. That's the biggest thing. Because just knowing that it's wrong doesn't keep you from doing it. You've got to submit to it. You've got to walk by faith. You've got to just trust in God that His Word is true, that His, His path is right, and that this alternative, even as tempting as it might be, as fun as it might be, as pleasurable as it might be, it's wrong. The consequences are the price you don't want to pay. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. Like I say, it goes on all the way down to verse 23, all the way down to the end of the chapter. And, and we've got to be honest about this. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the doors of her house, or you will give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one, the price that you pay later for the sin that you're engaging in now. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Because these kinds of sins have spiritual effects, they have soul effects, they have physical effects. And you say how I have hated instruction, my heart spurned reproof. You knew better, you just weren't listening. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. This is the positive admonishment. God has made provision, it's called marriage. And the marriage blessings are, are exactly there for a reason. Enjoy them, use them. All right. 
Anyway, those are the lessons there. Chapter 6, it continues. Chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9. Why do we have five discourses on promiscuity in these early chapters, in these first nine chapters of Proverbs? Because we need to stress this again and again and again and again. And this is what the Word of God will do. The commandment is a lamp. The teaching is a light. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep, you see, the way of life. It's not just parents yelling at you, not letting you have any fun. It's a way of life so that when you are on your own, when you are living in your own generation, when you no longer have mom and dad looking over your shoulder, you are standing in, the, in, the, in, in your own righteousness, in your own wisdom, in obedience to the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. You're making the biblical application yourself for the right reasons keeping you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And I think the language is fair. We've got to be fair. We've got to be upfront. Do not desire her beauty. You can't lie and say that it's not beauty. It is a beauty. You can't lie and say that it's not fun. When Moses called it the passing pleasures of sin, there are pleasures. They're just the carnal pleasures. They're the sinful pleasures. And if you deny that it's pleasurable, you're lying. Uh, You've you got to be right up front. It's very pleasurable. But it's got to be pleasurable within the boundaries that God designed it for. It is beauty. Outer beauty. Physical beauty. You should be looking for that inner beauty. Do not let her capture you with her eyelids. On account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. Everything gets becomes a commodity. Everybody, everything becomes... Uh, you know, something to be bought and sold and bargained over. And, and uh, is that really what it's about? Is a loaf of bread? And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. It's actually your nephesh. It's your soul that's on the line here. And you're going to pay a soul price. You're going to pay soul damage for this kind of sin. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? It's just not the way it works. Shove a torch down your shirt. That's going to hurt, okay? It's going to burn. That's what fire does. That's what adultery does. So the warning is given there. Same thing in chapter 7. More warnings. To keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Now today we would talk about, so for Israel as a covenant nation, as the theocracy, the foreigners are obviously Gentiles as opposed to Jews. Today we would say, believers and unbelievers, right? We would say there's, there's plenty of unbelievers out there. They don't have the norms and standards we have. We, we are born-again believers. We have biblical norms and standards. We, and, and they don't understand us. They think this is normal. It's a part of dating. It's a part of growing up. It's a part of uh, life. It's just regular. This whole hookup culture and rampant, you know, everything going on. They think we're, we're kooks. We're just some kind of Bible-thumping Puritans or we're just some kind of... Um, you know, they got all kinds of uh, different labels they give us. But the strange woman, the foreigner, and then you got this knucklehead. Out of the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and I saw among the naive, and I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Okay? Again, we want to have righteousness. We want to be walking in wisdom getting our children saved and getting them grounded in the Word of God, whereby it's the Word of God that shapes their decision-making, shapes their, their uh, 
life. Anyway, the whole chapter there practically from from verse 5 down to verse 27. And then the last word that's given on this is 13 through 18. The last word that's given in the parental wisdom portion of the book. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling those who pass by. You know, if she's just sitting there calling out and she's open for business and whosoever will may come, I mean, it's just, how special are you? (laughs) You know, you're just another schmuck, another victim, another, you know, another uh, victim coming by calling those who pass by who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. She says to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet. You know, this is the nature of victimization. You're looking for someone that's just, that wants it. Somebody that lacks understanding. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. All right, so again and again and again. Repeatedly in the youth, but they're reinforced by adult fathers to their adult sons. And that's why after all of these warning passages in chapter 2, 5, 6, 7, 9, that's why we have um, this section here in Proverbs 23, verses 26 through 28. Warning adult sons. You remember all those talks we had when you were growing up? We've got to talk about it again. Got to talk about it again. An adult son, an adult father to an adult son. And this guy, you know, the recipient of a message like this is probably himself, a married man. Maybe he has his kids of his own. Doesn't understand the damage he's about to inflict upon his family when he blows up a, a thing with, uh, with this. All right. Number 14. Words of the wise, number 18, the longest discourse on drunkenness anywhere in Proverbs. The longest discourse on drunkenness anywhere in Proverbs. And it's verses 29 through 35. 29 through 35, we got seven verses here dealing with drunkenness. And so we've touched on the the concept previously in chapter 20. In chapter 21, there was a pair of verses in chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. Uh, But now when we get to this one, seven verses on drunkenness. It'll be one more time it's going to come up in chapter 26. Six questions call attention to emotional, social, and physical problems that stem from lingering long over wine. Six questions. And then I, I actually I ripped that off from the Bible knowledge commentary. I think this came from um, Sid. What was that guy's name? Sid something or other. Which is a fun quote, and I liked it, so I, I stole it and put it on my slide. Six questions call attention to emotional, social, and physical problems that stem from lingering long over wine. And I've only got four minutes left, but it's not worth saving this for next week. And we're not even sure if we're going to have a class next week. I guess we'll see who shows up. We're going to have a lot of absences next week for Thanksgiving. All right. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? These are these questions. Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Ooh, 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 I know. (laughs) 
It's this drunk, okay? These drunk people. And of course, everybody has problems. Everybody has emotional problems. Everybody has financial... I mean, there are problems of life, but is getting drunk the answer? Does that fix anything? It just adds additional problems to the problems you started with. Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. All right, so the lingering long, this is not drinking in moderation. This is, this is spending a day with this. This is the long, drawn out, uh, this is not the purpose for alcohol. Those who go to taste mixed wine, those who uh, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, okay? If you're fascinated by the color of what you're drinking, <laughs> if you're just kind of looking at it, and man, and, and you've had too much, okay? The, the, the appearance of that beverage is not supposed to be dazzling you the way that it currently is dazzling you. Oh, look, it sparkles. <laughs> oh, look how red that is. And it goes down smoothly. I wonder if the next one will be just as red. And at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And yeah, there's and different um, wines or different liquors or different beers, different. Some have um, deceptive, deceptive effects. That at first they just taste fruity, they taste sweet, they taste oh it's not so bad, and then you realize later oh wait a minute, it has a delayed impact. So bites like a serpent, stings like a viper. And your eyes will see strange things. Well, how much have you been drinking? Okay? And that little leprechaun that's dancing across the bar there, it's, he's, he's not real. But your eyes are seeing it. And your mind will utter perverse things. Because your whole ra- rationality is gone in the drunkenness. All right. You'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Who does that? Like one who lies down on the top of a mast. Oh, that sounds fun. You know, if, if you think, man, this boat is really, really rocking, you're not even on a boat, okay? You're on shore. It's not a boat that's rocking. You're the one that can't sit straight on your stool. They struck me, but I did not become ill. Yeah, I can handle it. They beat me, but I did not know it. Man, it must have been some party last night. I don't even remember how I got to this alleyway. <laughs> okay. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Oh, well, okay. I'm awake now. Let's go back inside. Anyway, it's a, it's a sad, sad thing, but I'm out of time. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the, the principles and wisdom that is supplied through the book of Proverbs. I pray, Father, again, for wisdom and guidance moving forward. We, need, uh, we don't have that many Wednesdays left. Um, but we just need your wisdom, Father, as we cross from chapter 23 into 24. Thank you for, uh, for being so gracious. Thank you for opening our eyes. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.